Welcome to the Future Champions podcast for this episode of The Gospel According to Craig Tuffin, Part 1. Craig is an Australian-born, internationally recognised photographer who specialises in 19th century photographic techniques, concentrating on the very earliest methods that produce unique positive images. Craig is no ordinary photographer. Craig has a remarkable dedication to his craft and has won numerous awards for his work. He is a consultant in 19th century photographic methods for the Museum of Brisbane and regularly travels as a speaker at international events. Craig has exhibited his work nationally, internationally and can be found in numerous publications. His work is in the official collection of the National Gallery of Australia, the State Libraries of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria as well as many other private and public collections around the world. Despite his obvious qualifications, when speaking to Craig, there are three attributes that I believe define Craig Tuffin. They are service, humility and compassion. He is driven by a greater purpose and I hope it is captured in this two-part series of The Gospel According to Craig Tuffin. While Craig was always passionate about photography, it was a near-fatal accident that changed his outlook, focus and purpose. Tell me about your accident. 18 years ago, I was skateboarding. I was far too old to be skateboarding, doing a downhill. So I was, I, I was on a skateboard doing a downhill run and I hit a patch of gravel. I'd already done one run that afternoon and I was going up to do a second run, hit a patch of gravel and just simply came off. No helmet, hit my head on the ground and fractured the back of my skull. My brain rebounded so violently it um, it then fractured through both my eye sockets. I was unconscious. We worked out for probably around 25 minutes, regained consciousness and then picked up my board, walked up the hill to my girlfriend's house at the time and started fitting and throwing up and she called the ambulance and was taken to hospital. So I'm a big advocate for wearing helmets on skateboards and bicycles and scooters. But um, yeah, that was the sum of the, the accident. So when you talk about skateboarding, what sort of hill are we talking about? Yeah, <laughs> um, it, was a pretty, it was a bit of a crazy hill. It was a pastime, but like anything I was doing at the time, I took it pretty seriously. So I was on a, on a competitive longboard. So I was probably traveling on that particular hill at about 60 kilometers an hour at the time, which isn't a bad, a bad bit of speed to be on a skateboard, but certainly pretty stupid to be without a helmet at the time. And what was the rationale for not wearing a helmet? wasn't cool. It was just had a skateboard in the back of the car at the time. Thought this is a this is a hill I want to bomb, and I went for it. And you're doing it by yourself. By myself, absolutely. Another rule broken, to be completely honest. And then you find yourself in hospital. Which hospital did you go to? I was in the Gold Coast Hospital, so an ambulance took me straight there um, in emergency, where CAT scan picked up the skull fractures and the bleed, and so I was taken straight in, and they took care of me, um, and they did a great job. My family was, was given the potential news that I, I wouldn't make it through the night, but obviously I did. <laughs> I think when you're going through those sorts of circumstances, at the time you're just dealing with it. And, you know, as serious as it is, all you're doing is dealing with that particular circumstance. 
I knew it was very, very serious because people were rushing around everywhere, but I was absolutely fine with it. Morphine helps <laughs> because I was given a fair bit of morphine for the pain, but it was just, you just do what you need to do at the time. I, I think even in, you know, these horrific accidents, it, it tends to, the, the adrenaline rush and everything else happens afterwards, doesn't it? So I think it was the same type of thing. You, you look back on what you went through and think, well, that was a pretty serious ordeal. But when you're going through it at the time, you're just dealing with those circumstances at that particular moment. Can you talk to me about what your life was before the accident? I was a single dad at the time. So that was a pretty important part of my life. Thankfully, my daughter wasn't with me at the time. She was with her mother. And I was just, I was just living life, the, the, whatever it brought me at the time, and just doing the best I could at the time. But yes, spontaneity, and you know, I wasn't that young. But when you're younger, you tend to feel that you're invincible. Um, you're going to surf the biggest wave, you're going to bomb the biggest hill, and you're you're not worried about the consequences. And to be honest, if you are worried about the consequences, sometimes that can hamstring you and actually create that worst case scenario because you're nervous and you're scared. So a, a little bit of um, naivety, I think, can be good in the sense that you really do put 100% into what you're doing. comes with its own risks, though. Can you talk about your photography before your accident? I, look, I did a lot of freelance work. I was doing um, – I did some work overseas in Samoa, um, so – you know, Sydney Morning Herald and, and um, I was, did some work with, I was doing a bit of work with Gold Coast Titans, so a lot of sports stuff, um, Morrison Media with Surfing Life, Surfing World. So I was doing all those sorts of stuff in my own freelance um, stuff beyond that. And yes, I was teaching and I was also teaching in um, dark rooms. So that's, you know, analog old school photography as well. But, you know, I'd been teaching for, you know, 20, 23, 24 years at the time. So that was a that was a fair part of my career. And when you look back at your old work and at that time, did you have any frustrations about the type of work you were doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, actually, at the time, no. No. I'd have to admit, no, I didn't because you're just doing these jobs as they come up and they're exciting. I was working in an exciting part of the industry. I was just doing things as they came up. Um, I, was a, I was a new single father, so I was learning a lot about what that entails and trying to be the best dad I could at the time. So no, that was just life. That was just the, the cards that I was dealt. And when you were starting to teach young people the art of old photography, mm. did that uh, kindle something within you? Look, I'd, I've always loved the darkroom work because, you know, it, magic seems to happen. Everyone's exactly the same. It doesn't matter whether they're 12 years old or they're 72 years old because, you know, I've run a lot of these workshops with a whole range of people now. There's always this sense of magic when the, the, when the print comes up in the developer in the darkroom and, and the craft and those sorts of things, the tangible quality that you've got of these, these objects, these photographs, everyone is sold on it. Absolutely everyone is sold on it. So it's, it's, it is really motivating to be able to teach those things, not just because they're old, but because there is a really wonderful craft that's associated with it. Um, something really special happens. I shoot digital as well, but the best that I can get from that is if my monitors are calibrated, I'm profiling properly and my printer's calibrated, everything's working well, um, is that I'm satisfied that the print, the archival inkjet print, is looking the same as what it does on my monitor. But when I'm printing in the darkroom, or I'm using some of these really old techniques, there is something quite 
spectacular about the things that come out on the other side. Can you tell me the difference between what you do now? So what type of photography are you doing now compared to what most people would understand to be photography? Well, the, the best way to describe it is historical forms of photographic method. A lot of people use alternative. I don't really agree with that too much, but they're old, you know. So uh, in 1839 was the birth of photography. Louis de Guerre in France or through a ruggo, um, a politician announced this new process of capturing images on these um, light sensitive materials and these these silver plates. I use that method. So that's one of them. So the very first, and I always spruik that, you know, photography was made perfect and it went downhill from there because these things are these things are phenomenal. And there's no other photographic method that's quite like it. So that's one of the key ones that I do. The next major process was in 1851, which was um, which was a process discovered and published by Frederick Scott, Scott Archer, which is wet plate collodion or wet collodion. So you're sensitizing a glass plate. You're then exposing that to light and you're developing that in a, in a dark room. That went a step further where they're doing it on a black surface and it might, that glass might be backed with something black. So these were negatives. Originally, if it's backed with something black, then you actually see the image Immediately, you don't need a, a negative to then transfer to paper. Um, so they were called positives. And then they were also on thin sheets of iron, which were tin types. And those processes were popular right through the Civil War because they were robust. You could get your likeness taken in the middle of a war, cut up a shears, put it in an envelope and send it home to your loved ones because they wouldn't be damaged, whereas the earlier processes certainly could be. And to be honest, those positives were, you know, they were done. They weren't done by photographers. They were often at carnivals and things. They were very, very cheap to, to do. So those are the major processes I do right through to a lot of film. So I shoot large sheet film. My van actually turns into a camera as well. And then more modern processes. So I still I do shoot digital. So one of the major um, bodies of work I'm doing at the moment, I've tried to shoot with large format um, color film. I'm not getting exactly what I want. I'm shooting it digitally. So use the, the palette and the brush that's most appropriate to the work you're trying to make. So you had a near-death experience. You're in the hospital. How do you transfer from your mindset of where you were with your photography to where you are now? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I had an epiphany. So I was in hospital, I was, and I won't say it's a morphine, but I was just thinking, and I, this isn't unusual for a life or death experience where you start to think, about your legacy. You know, if I was to go now, what's the sum of my life? What would, would I leave any residue? Something that perhaps I would be proud of for my daughter and now my daughters. And I came up quite short, you know, everything I'd, I'd done up to that point of really was all about me. Um, and I thought, gee, I wish I had something that was resounding that I could leave behind. Not so much for it to be completely about me, but just something that I contributed towards, you know. And I knew of um, the work of, of an artist, a photographer, Sally Mann, over in, in the States who lived in Virginia, and um, she was using this really old photographic technique, and there were all these mistakes and these bits and pieces missing off the images, and I thought, gee, that's, that's wonderful. That's so creative. Um, how did she do that? 
I'd read her books before, you know, the, 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 these are all in, um, if you're studying the theory and the history of photography, you, you see this stuff. But I was really, I just thought, well, if I could make a body of work using this with um, people that, that were on the fringes or, you know, had intellectually um, disabilities or physical disabilities, uh, alcoholism, all these sorts of things where, you know, we, we unfortunately are very visual discriminators. You know, we don't have to have a conversation with someone before we judge them. So if I could use these people that are so obviously visually discriminated and I could photograph them with this process that is obviously faulty in some ways or I can make it more faulty, but I could represent their character as opposed to their condition, I thought, gee, that would be a, that would be a really powerful body of work. That would be worthwhile. You know, that, that happened at about day three after the accident. So the third day, after, not the day itself, so that would be day four if you include the day of the accident. And I was so passionate about that. The next day I checked out of hospital and I started reading old texts and contacting people in the US and trying to find out as much information as I possibly could so that I could, you know, put this new idea, this, you know, this, this new motivation to work. How quickly did your vision become a reality? Or let me ask another question. Has it become a reality? Certainly what my idea was at that point has become a reality, but it always shifts, doesn't it? You always want to take it that step further and, and make it something more than what it is. And I, I think we are our greatest critics too. So as, as happy as the work that I've made and that's in collections now, there's so much more that I want to be able to do. There's so much more that I, I, I really want to have a voice with. It took me 12 to 18 months to start because I was, Nowadays, there are workshops that you've got access to. Um, you've got so many modern texts that you've got access to online that I didn't have at that that point. It was a lot more difficult to have access to that information. So I went through a substantial amount of failure. I can have put, uh, someone in a workshop, in a tintype workshop with me now, and by the end of that day, they're doing great work. They get a workbook that goes with it and they get pages and pages of information about troubleshooting. If this goes wrong, this is the reason. I didn't have any of that. So I was flying blind and, and making a lot of mistakes. But thankfully, there were, there were people overseas that, um, that could help me and there was infom this information sharing. And yeah, eventually I got those things to do what I wanted them to do. And then I started investigating other photographic methods because, you know, what's important to me is the object itself. It has weight, it has scale. When you, and there's truthfulness that's built into it. I mean, you know, there's a... There's an age-old verse where, you know, all photographs lie. And they do. You know, the, there's no truth in photography. I, I could take a photo of you and I could, whatever written word is attributed to it is, is what is then truthful. I'd say all these awful things about you and all of a sudden people see that photograph and they think that's you. However, with these objects, because the faults, the things that go wrong are, are just as present as the successes, that thing then becomes a truthful entity. And for me, that's really valuable. I like the fact that there is no Photoshop involved. And the things that often irk me that I go, you know, gee, I wish that wasn't there. Later on, you know, someone says, gee, that's interesting, isn't it? How that happened. So this reach for per perfection, it, although inevitable, is often unsustained. You know, but it, it, it can really empower the work, which is, which is wonderful. 
in those first 18 months where you were struggling and you had no external support, uh, did you doubt yourself? Did you feel like giving up? I don't know how many times, you know, Carly, my wife, will, she'll be able to say, yeah, yeah, there's numerous times where I said, I just can't, because it, it costs money. You know, these materials aren't cheap. So there were a lot of times that I wanted to give up, but I would not let myself give up purely because I wanted to make sure that I achieved that goal that I'd set myself. And although that goal seems quite small now in comparison to the goals I set myself now, it was really important for me coming out of that accident that this, this new drive, this, this impetus that was created through that event wasn't lost. Otherwise, I'd just wasted 18 months, you know, 12 to 18 months to get these things right. When did you decide to surrender more of your professional life and really take on your passion for what you're doing with photography? Yeah, well, that, that took a little while. You know, I was still teaching part-time and, and it was really, I, I suppose, motivated by all these people that surrounded me that said, Craig, you just have to do this. This, And particularly Carly and my wife, she says, you, you, you have to do this. I've got some other dear friends, one of them a professional photographer, and he was saying exactly the same thing because I wanted to stay safe. I mean, I, I, a child to look after. I had a family. So I wanted to make sure that I had this regular income. But there came a point where it was, no, an opportunity lost. How sad is that? I, don't, I, I didn't ever want to get to a point where I thought, you know, I no longer have the opportunity. I had the opportunity and now it's not there. So you, I had to go for it. And the potential for failure, it, 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 it didn't measure up against the opportunity for success. Was there a moment you knew you had achieved part of your goal or what you set out to achieve or that you could achieve it? There, there are numerous moments. Every time I get a successful plate, it's another moment. You know, it's, it's another, oh, this is fantastic. I, I love doing this. And selling your work, knowing that people want to pay money for what you do is, is a wonderful thing. Having work acquired by institutions, important institutions, um, is for me very important. And it's a very proud moment knowing that these things will stay in that institution for the term of its life. It was an, a number of different events. All of those things together um, allowed me to make the decision. And certainly my wife saying, Craig, just go for it. No matter what happens, we'll be okay. You've got to do it. How important is it to have someone in your life that helps you push a little bit harder, a little bit further than you feel comfortable? Oh, it's huge. You know, if you, were, if you had someone in your life that was pushing against you doing that, I think that would be very, very difficult. And certainly there's a very good chance I would have, I would have stopped because it, it, um, it, it took part of our income to do that, to experiment, to fail. So it was really, really important to me that she was um, so keen and, and really, I can say this proudly, my biggest fan of the work that I was doing too. So yeah, it was great. It was, you know, I can't thank her enough for, for really um, motivating me to take the next step. 
having these exhibitions and having her there and then, you know, having these shows and then getting to New York and, you know, exchanging ideas. There are key people now that I deal with around the world and particularly with this daguerreotype method, this first method, um, where there are so many things that we're still discovering. We all communicate to each other around the world. And I tried using methods that other people were using and I found them fail dismally. So, you know, there's this, <laughs> what people say now is that you could get 10 daguerreotypists in a room and you'd have 10 completely different methods because we've all attuned or, or, or you know, we've all developed the method that works best for us. Is there a subject that you've taken images of mm-hmm. that has either impacted you or impacted them? Is it a story you can share with us? I can, you know, and this was right back at the beginning. Um, That first body of work was titled As Faulty As We Are. And it was, you know, really a metaphor for our own lives that, you know, we don't have to have these extreme circumstances. We are in our core quite broken at times. You know, we can... Um, we may not have the disability some people have, but we can certainly identify that we don't have perfect lives. And thank heavens for that, to be completely honest. But there was one, there was a, a boy, Elliot. He had a, um, an unusual form of ASD. So he'd walk right up on his toes and he found it difficult toileting himself sometimes. And um, he would be quite excited at some times sort of with these clapping hands and then he would he would uh, at other times it was very very difficult for poor Elliot, but Elliot found certain things very very difficult, and his parents too. You know that's a that's a really difficult ride, but he had wonderful parents. Really wanted to get a portrait of Elliot. Really basic, you know. So center of frame, just flash, and and it, just to have him present there because there's so many things that can go wrong with this. You've got to sensitize the plate properly. You've got to get it in the back of this really large format camera. Um, and then you've got to develop everything by hand. And uh, with all of these things, so many things can go wrong. Your exposure has to be perfect. And quite often exposures without flash will be several seconds, up to 10, 20 seconds, um, where they have to remain still. Now, I was using flash, and I was using a lot of flash, which is quite shocking for anyone that would be sitting under normal circumstances. Now, for someone like Elliot, I had no idea what the (laughs) potential failure or the result would be. But I had Elliot there, this really large camera, and I had this head brace, which is just a piece of metal that makes contact with the back of the head so that I can maintain focus. So I had his mum with me and we sat him in the chair and had a, a um, iPad next to this lens of this camera and had talking Sam. He'd say something and he'd, he'd talk back in a funny voice and Elliot loved this. So we were talking backwards and forwards and I would just get his mum to tell me when he was maintained contact and I would get focus of this camera. So I could return to that later on. And I had folks, she goes, yep, yeah, okay. So I went into my dark room and I said, Elliot can just play around in the, in the studio, have fun, have a look around and talking Sam and I'll be out in about four or five minutes when I've sensitized this glass plate. So I went in and I sensitized the glass plate, came back to the, to the camera and you've got a window where, it, you know, if, if it's a hot day and the plate dries out in, in the space of about 10 minutes, it then renders it useless. You've got to do the whole thing again. So I had this window and I, I put the plate in the back of the camera. I wasn't going to bother trying to refocus. I just said, can, can you tell me when his head makes contact with the head brace again? Because I, I know that he should be in focus and we're just going to set the flash off because there's no shutter in these 
cameras. You just take the cap off the end of the lens, you fire the flash and you hope for the best. So we had talking Sam and we're backwards and forwards. It's taking a little while. And then she goes, yep. And I've just pulled the cap off and I've hit the remote to hit this flash and boom, it was 12,000 watt seconds, which is a lot of light went off in, in, in one go and I thought, oh, what's going to happen next? And he loved it. He just said, let's do it again. <laughs> so, but, you know, I've got this exposed plate. I put the dark slide back into the, into the plate holder. I had to get back into the dark room and develop it as quickly as I could. Or again, the plate would dry out and it'd be absolutely useless. So I developed a plate, I come out and the last stage is you put it in the fixer. So what it does is it makes the image suddenly appear it goes from what looks like it would be a negative to a positive and I remember putting it in the fixer in front of Elliot's mum and as his image came up and I call this plate Elliot and the lucky elephant because he was wearing this shirt with his elephant with his trunk in the air Elliot appeared and it was just perfect but it was just it was just Elliot and she burst into tears and she goes no one's ever been able to photograph Elliot just as he is the way that we see him Everyone always sees him as something else. And it was magic. Join us for part two of the Gospel According to Craig Tuffin. My name is Stuart Taylor. Thank you for joining us and stay safe.